Okay, so this is um, the third and last talk in the series, and it's called Tradition and Culture. So before secular Buddhist practices and groups appeared in Western countries, by and large Westerners entertained one or two, one of two basic conceptions of what um, Buddhism was. So it was, Buddhism was, first of all, exotica. Um, it uh, came to the West with strange rituals and mystical beliefs like rebirth, uh, temples and gold-plated Buddha images that um, tourists uh, gawp at in Thailand and elsewhere, the occasional glimpse of a shaven-headed figure on the street, suitably berobed, um, and there was also uh, chic but uh, impenetrable pearls of Zen wisdom that one heard from time to time, like, you know, what is the sound of one hand clapping, and that sort of thing that the Western mind found endlessly fascinating and ended up in great bestsellers like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And then we had, of course, the periodic appearance of a, a giggling but profound Dalai Lama wearing colourful robes and uh, an eye shade uh, momentarily appearing on the television screen. So there was this idea of there was something exotic, brilliant, unknown, um, uh, possibly... Um, possibly approachable about Buddhism as exotica. Then the second, the second sort of uh, uh, image of Buddhism came from the idea that Buddhist traditions had wonderfully effective medit med meditation techniques entirely unknown uh, in the Western world, in the Western tradition, forged by um, by centuries of Asian monastic development and these techniques it was thought could solve one's misery uh, misery, solve one's problems become allowing one to become more effective at something one was already doing like writing or scientific discovery or whatever it was or even playing tennis so both of these conceptions were potent, packageable and marketable and had sort of strange spin-offs like the ubiquity of Buddha images in um, garden shops. You can, you know, you can, the, 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 the Buddha images have sort of begun to compete with garden gnomes because there was a sort of a touch of... Um, the exotic, the magical, the wonderful about about that. Whereas the poor old gnomes were a bit clapped out by the time we get to the latter 20th, 21st century. Um, now secular Buddhism arrives sort of a bit like the uninvited guest at the marriage of um, Buddhism and Western society. And uninvited guests are often uh, quite ill-mannered 
without really intending to be so. So secular Buddhism is a bit critical of Exotica. You know, uh, some of us have read uh, Edward Said's magnificent book called Orientalism. Uh, how Western culture created a concept of other with a capital O. And um, this, uh, this idea of the other um, was, you know, has swung backwards and forwards between um, the exotic East uh, and the exotic Middle East. You know, so when we're not... Um, uh, in the 1930s, people were reading... Zen and the Art of Archery, written by a German philosopher called Eugen Herigl. Uh, then, uh, bef just before that, people were reading A Thousand and One Arabian Nights. It was the Arabs who were exotic and exciting and other. So, uh, there's always so, you know, Ed Said, who was a Palestinian, of course, um, uh, was really interested in the way that Western culture came to depend upon the creation of a, of a counterweight of, a, of, of this other, the idea of the other, who was the complete opposite of what Westerners are, you know, boring and rational and unimaginative and so on. Um, and so there was this critical attitude to exotica um, and the, um, the thing is that secular Buddhism doesn't have anything that's really packageable and marketable like, you know, uh, Buddha images for the garden or um, Delphic Zen expressions. So it tends to criticise other people's packages and uh, marketable items. If we look at it more positively, what secular Buddhism wants to do is honour the Buddha's living tradition. And that's a word I want to unpack now. It wants to honour that tradition by adapting it, making it uh, fully accessible, fully practicable in, uh, in a Western cultural environment. And in this way, secular Buddhism accentuates the importance of tradition and culture. And I just want to then go into what these terms are about. And that's essentially the substance of what I want to say now. Uh, to its critics, of course, secular Buddhism is the antithesis of traditional Buddhism. Uh, you know, that um, uh, there's this true Buddhism, or what in Sri Lanka is often called the pristine Dharma, and uh, everybody knows what that is and is completely kosher and fair dinkum. And then there's this other thing called secular Buddhism, uh, which seems to be critical of it and uh, doesn't buy into some of the beliefs that have come uh, to, uh, in the popular mind at least, to define what Buddhism is, like belief in rebirth. Uh, and, you know, in secular Buddhist uh, practice groups, you don't see any robes, um, you very rarely see any ritual uh, and um, they don't hang around in monasteries or temples by and large. And it has, um, as we've seen today, tended to 
turn away from meditative techniques that are associated with conventional forms of um, Buddhism in Buddhist homelands. So in answer to the accusation that secular Buddhism subverts so-called true Buddhism, let me introduce what seems to me a vital distinction coming out of the work of a uh, moral philosopher called Alastair MacIntyre. He, just, he, he is one of the people who, who is very uh, protective of the whole idea of tradition, and he, but he also distinguishes between what he calls living traditions and dead traditions. And McIntyre's argument is that any practice worthy of the name, um, whether it is the Dharma, or dentistry, or architecture, or medicine, or painting, or poetry, or literature, or gardening. All these practices uh, by which human beings develop themselves are all held by a tradition. The tradition means that a practitioner starting now doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. There's already uh, an enormous... Um, body of work, a body of principles, uh, even a body of techniques that can be uh, that can be pretty rapidly mastered and then the practitioner can go forward with it. So that so tradition is so important for holding any practice worthy of the name. And a living tradition, McIntyre says, is a uh, is a is a conversation that goes on between generations over hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years. It's a a conversation that often rises in temperature uh, to become an argument, a debate, and it's going on the whole time about how to to, um, cultivate the values that are inherent in this in this tradition. What's this practice for? How can it be taken further? And in order for a tradition to be a living tradition in this way, the the, the current practitioners inside that tradition have to know how it started, who the founder was, and what were the questions she or he was trying to answer. What were the original, the generative questions with which this tradition began, and um, and how did how were they provisionally answered at the time, and then how have the how has the conversation continued? How have the questions been redefined? How have the answers been reworked? Uh, how have they been critiqued and replaced, and so on? So. Uh, this is the kind of living tradition I guess we can see in, uh, in something like medicine where there's constant uh, battle going on between ideas, new, uh, new research projects, new tests going out, new surveys, etc. So that you know, an idea has no, um, has, or a theory has no guaranteed lease of life at all. And this is why, you know, we, that, that seems like a pretty healthy tradition. Uh, forms of medical treatment keep changing as new ideas, new 
drugs, etc., are tested and tried, found to work, and then found not to work as nearly as well as we could make them work, and new ones are discovered. Um, so that is how a living tradition works. Uh, and it sort of is an illustration of the old saying, to have a future, you first have to have a past. You have to be really in touch with that past to know exactly how the tradition can move forward. Now, by contrast, a dead tradition, and I think most of the time when we hear the word tradition, uh, we really are, we really do mean a dead tradition. A dead tradition is one uh, in which the current practitioners don't know how it began. They don't know the original questions. They don't know how the conversation has continued, how things have changed, what have been the main, the principal directions of change and improvement in the tradition. So if you're in that position of not knowing that, all you can do if you're practising in a tradition is simply reproduce what you've been taught, reproduce uh, the rituals, um, the... Uh, the, the, you know, the liturgy, if you like, uh, that you have received and you see it as your way of honouring that tradition as simply to keep it as it is. And um, I, so th this, the progressive idea of a living tradition is something, I think, quite new to, uh, to a lot of people. So most expressions of secular Buddhism are highly traditionalist in the living tradition sense. It seems to be something that while there's many different currents of secular Buddhism now, they all seem to want to go back to uh, the original teaching. That seems to be the place you've got to start to, to, uh, to really come to grips with the generative questions that, uh, that this tradition began with. What questions did the Buddha ask and why did he catch, him the, catch them the way he did? Uh, and an interesting reflection in, about that, which I, I don't think I've raised so far, is that the Buddha lived at a time of great social turbulence. People were... Um, it was the period of the agricultural revolution when um, there was an improvement in metallurgy and with the use of metal tools, there was a great increase in the productivity of agriculture, which meant people could produce a surplus. Before that, they, you know, they, were, they were producing a bare subsistence. When they started producing a surplus, what did they do? They started trading. So you get trade. You get trade routes. You get trading centres, i.e. towns. And you get, so you get a process of urbanisation, uh, and the development of uh, urban occupations. And with that comes uh, all sorts of life choices that weren't there before. Somebody has gone through the entire Pali Canon and figured out that there are 29 urban occupational groups mentioned there. Now this was something, at the time, pretty new. That, they, that most before that people had lived in small subsistence agricultural communities. There was no trade because there was no 
surplus, there was no money economy, uh, there was no social mobility, uh, people really didn't have choices. So if we think about, and, and of course this meant that um, there was a lot of political upheaval too because wealth was being created, wealth was being created in particular in towns which meant it was uh, worth uh, the while of some despot or other to uh, pay to get up an army to actually start grabbing some of these uh, wealth-creating towns. So there was a huge amount of turbulence going on. Um, and one of the things, but one of the other things was a real existential issue was that those people who had a comparative amount of wealth and leisure in the towns who were making the sort of choices people in that situation make were discovering that it wasn't making them happy. You know, there was this sense of disappointment that having these choices, having this leisure, having a, you know, a degree of comfort actually didn't lead to one living uh, in eternal bliss. It was the great, you know, the first uh, arising of the great uh, money illusion that money equals wealth. So, um, so the big issue at the time was about suffering. It was about dukkha. Hey, how come we're still suffering when we've actually got some money in our pockets and, and, we, and we don't have to, you know, uh, work from dawn to dusk in the fields? You know, what's going on here? So this was uh, a big question at the time uh, it, around the, the Ganges Plain, which was a, a comparatively well-to-do part of uh, India. And who but a townie like Siddhartha Gautama uh, would be the person to think through this in a much deeper and more creative way. And so once he had, had his, um, his great awakening experience, and started to attract followers. Who were the followers? Other townies. This is where he was picking up, this is where he was, if you like, uh, finding his converts was among people like himself who wondered what on earth is going on? Why am I still suffering uh, despite the advantages that I have? You know, and you find all these uh, wonderful incidents of... Um, uh, you know, uh, fathers of young men who, or, and sometimes young women whom the, the, the Buddha has attracted into his fold and the fathers who probably work very hard to create their businesses uh, are furious because um, you know, they want their sons to take over the business etc etc so you can, see, you, you can see the social pattern. This is why the questions were being asked in the way that they were, that they were asked and this is uh, how the Buddha set out to, uh, to answer those questions about, um, about the human condition because no matter how much urbanisation, how much wealth is created, the human condition remains the human condition with birth, ageing, sickness and death, etc., um, so um, that was one. So we know that seems to be how this tradition began, with the asking of those sorts of questions, which were 
for very good uh, socioeconomic uh, reasons were in the air. And the other thing was, of course, the issue of forms of association, which I, I think I mentioned last night. You know, what it's tremendously important for uh, spiritual and religious life and all sorts of other kinds of lives that, that people form communities. We are herd animals and, um, and we need to form uh, communities. So how should we relate to each other in these communities? And there's, of course, an infinite variety when you look around um, forms of human association. They go from the extremely authoritarian to, uh, to the very um, egalitarian and democratic. And I raised this issue in the last talk about how... Uh, the, the renunciant followers of the Buddhas of the Buddha went from a essentially republican civic republican uh, idea that everyone is equal, things are thrashed out between equals in uh, in uh, arguments and discussions to a situation of, of um, uh, extreme hierarchy and authoritarianism and um, uh, last year, I mean, I read a, a thesis um, on uh, a participant observation PhD thesis on the Goenka movement, and uh, the thesis had photographs in it. And this woman who'd written it was uh, was Swedish, but she'd gone to India and gone on various retreats, Goenka retreats in India. And one of the photographs was the house rules. On a, on a residential Goenka retreat in India. Rule number one, never question the teacher. <laughs> so um, you can see that there's, there's a huge variation in, uh, in how, uh, how, in the forms of association that have supported uh, the, the, the tradition of Dharma practice over the centuries. Um, and so this is why questions of Institutions arise because institutions often are the um, are, are the forms are the, the sort of concrete worldly forms in which uh, institutions are held. So in in Buddhism, Buddhism uniquely depended upon uh, monastic uh, monasticism as the tradition uh, that um, perpetuated. So, as the institutions that perpetuated the tradition that held the practice, and that this has left us with uh, a, a whole set of issues, because um, in the Western world, in particular, uh, monasticism is just not uh, a viable form of association for uh, Buddhism to uh, find wide, widespread adherence and widespread practitioners. So, at its most basic level, secular Buddhism seeks to acculturate the Dharma in the West and allow it to sink deep roots in Western cultural soil. Now, you know, uh, there's one of uh, the criticisms I've seen of secular Buddhism is its continuation of the Western colonial project of um, uh, sort of pouring uh, derision and scorn on other folks um, 
institutions and belief systems and folkways. Uh, I suspect that the problem has been the opposite, that while it's been perfectly okay uh, for the Chinese 2,000 years ago to say, hey, this Dharma looks pretty good, why don't we re- restate it, reframe it in a way we can relate to in terms of our own culture, uh, that, which is what the Chinese did with tremendous creativity and effectiveness, and which is essentially what's happened to the Dharma in every new host uh, society uh, and civilization has come into. That's why you've got you know, Korean uh, Buddhism, you've got Tibetan Buddhism, and uh, Japanese Buddhism, and so on. Because in all these cases, uh, often many, many centuries ago now, uh, people have, 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 have got a sense of the importance of the Dharma and its practice, and they want to make it effective uh, in the new host environment. So they've reframed uh, it, restated it, re-expressed it uh, in terms of the native genius. And what is happening in the West now is no different to, to that sort of acculturation, that sort of cultural adaptation, uh, which has gone on countless times before as the Dharma has gone into, into um, uh, new societies. If we don't do that, uh, then it's simply going to create uh, incoherences uh, in our lives. You know, uh, we Westerners alive today, those of us who are Westerners, um, uh, you know, have a particular kind of cultural background. Uh, part of our package, part of our uh, part of our baggage is uh, a certain set of beliefs about the world. They're not beliefs we need to, uh, you know, proselytise. But I think we were saying last night, I mean, most of us probably think Darwin was fundamentally right. You know, we, um, that, that uh, life began a long, long time ago on this planet in the form of amoebae and it gradually uh, more and more species were developed out of that, more and more sophisticated species and eventually, um, you know, whatever it was, 120,000 years Homo sapiens began to strut around, and that's who we are, folks. <laughs> um, that seems to be, you know, the story. And that means, of course, we have evolutionary factors that aren't doing us too much good at the moment, like greed, hatred, and delusion. And maybe the Dharma, maybe the Dharma can help us uh, get, you know, overcome those. Most of us, I think, um, yeah, except the cosmology we get out of the CSIRO about the Big Bang Theory and about um, all that other stuff that's going on with, you know, particle physics and theories of supersymmetry and so on. I mean, it's just stuff we uh, that we just take for granted. It's not. It's th- th- these are not you know religious um, religious positions. They're simply stuff we take for granted. Like I've been suggesting that there were certain stuff. The Buddha would have taken for granted in his own time for all for just the same reasons that they seem pretty obvious to everybody at the time. Um, so, but because we have this particular um, uh, reality construct in our minds, uh, then we're not really terribly um, we're not 
really terribly receptive to ideas of about you know Davis and Rackers and rebirth and so on. Uh, and maybe that sort of thing is going to hold us back if we aren't prepared to say, well, look, that's not relevant anymore. I mean, this is not going to really help us to believe in that stuff. Uh, as I've told some of you, last month I was um, invited to a conference in um, Napier, New Zealand, uh, a, a conference of a... Um, a, a rather large movement called the Sea of Faith movement, which is essentially Christians who are, who think um, the teachings of Jesus are really, really important and they really deserve to be liberated out of all the supernatural nonsense that's in the New Testament. So God is out, virgin birth is out, <laughs> immortality of the soul is out, wasn't a Christian doctrine in any case, they pinched it from Plato. Um, and so all, everything that is supernatural for these people is out. What they're trying to do is, is reissue Christianity as an ethical and spiritual path. Very much, I think, in line with um, uh, what is going on with secular Buddhism, which is why people, you know, these secular Christians are rather lovers you know, they always like to have a secular Buddhist at their conferences <laughs> to compare notes with, uh, and it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting exercise. You know, I mean, these are very serious Christians, uh, but they are, are absolutely determined to get rid of God and all the rest of it, so that you know the real, the real teaching about uh, you know, about compassion and so forth is going to is going to shine forth. Um, so, um, you know, Western converts to Buddhism face, a, to, I would say, a fairly stark choice between either um, creating a, a kind of um, uh, incoherence between living as ordinary Westerners and believing what ordinary Westerners believe about stuff and then coming into uh, an Asian tradition and believing a whole lot of other things. This is, this is what, you know, in psychology they call cognitive dissonance. Uh, you're holding two contradictory beliefs uh, at the same time. And um, so that doesn't seem to me to be uh, a very useful way to proceed, although I was certainly one of those who did proceed in that way, and I, um, I presume that if you look at Western, ethnically Western uh Practitioners of the Dharma in the West now, there are probably more of those who are who go down the cognitive dissonance road than there are uh, secular Buddhists. But maybe you know things are uh, moving in another direction now. Um, and the uh, the other issue is then how we relate to each other. You know that, uh, and I certainly in my. Uh, 25 years or whatever it is of being of practicing the Dharma, I've been really been through the mill with uh, clashes between um, uh, Asian and Western organisational principles, because it, it seems to be part and parcel of what you of what you get 
if you if you work in a quote unquote traditional Buddhist movement, uh, that you will end up with a hierarchical and pretty authoritarian way of of organising and making decisions. And you'll also end up with endless struggles over gender equality and inclusiveness. So why go there? Why not just say, okay, let's just have normal principles of association, not the ones that are normal in the West. You know, if, you, if you're keen on basketball and you form a local basketball club um, and the people get together, some are more active than others, the ones who are more active get more say in, in how it's going to work. And they go on something called a committee, often. <laughs> um, and it would be ludicrous for someone to come in and say, hey, I, I'm, a, you know, I'm a hereditary baron and I outrank all of you, so I'm going to make all the decisions. You think, you, know, you think, what is this? You know, this would be absolutely insane because the assumption is uh, that people meet as equals, just as in you know, the first organising principles of, um, of the Buddha's little uh, bands of semi-feral renunciants. That, that was how they assumed that one should operate and indeed how they had, would encourage them to operate. So, um, and, and of course there is, there is these days in the West absolutely no excuse for uh, uh, not meeting the demands of gender uh, inclusiveness and equality. There is no reason in the world why uh, we should compromise on that, whether we're dealing with Buddhist organisations uh, or Catholic ones or Russian Orthodox ones or anything, or any of those that continue uh, to practice gender exclusion and inequality. And so the, one of the things that uh, is becoming increasingly striking with in secular Buddhist um, groups is also the issue of spiritual authority. Now, in the Buddhist, uh, you know, in the sort of um, ancestral Buddhist world, uh, spiritual authority comes from on high. There is a process of dharma transmission to dharma heirs. So, you know, it's uh, always a top-down process. You find uh, more and more, you know, perfectly de facto way that in secular Buddhist circles it tends to be the opposite. There is um, that people have authority, people are invited to teach because they're credible to uh, the rank and file membership. So it's not much different to a basketball club uh, looking around for a good coach and everyone reckons, okay, she's a good coach so we'll have her. But um, this is a tremendous change in the nature of authority uh, and the nature of um, dharma transmission and dharma teaching, that uh, a teacher is someone who has the confidence of, uh, of the rank and file, if you want to put it like that, rather than someone who has been anointed 
to, uh, to carry on uh, a top-down tradition. Um, and, and then, of course, there is this issue of, um, that, I, that I, I keep coming back to, that our meditation experience and our meditation practice needs to, uh, needs to um, resonate with the way of life we are actually living. And most of us you know, in the West are, are lay people, we're living complex lives, and uh, this is going to affect the way in which we do, we meditate in general, we uh, practice insight meditation in particular, and this of course raises the question I've been coming back to again and again, how do we operationalise the Satipatthana Sutta as probably the most important source of insight meditation that we have as a living tradition. How do we actually make that work in the kind of situation, in the context that we find ourselves in now? Um, so our, our meditation practice and our, and our wider Dharma practice has to mesh with uh, what we are doing. And it, it just seems to be um, that, that most of us have made a decision we're not going to shave our heads and go and live in monasteries. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. And there seems a, a, you know, a very clear dharmic way in which to do that. So uh, anything that's based upon the idea of a monastic norm, of a, of a renunciatory way of life, is not going to be appropriate for the kinds of lives that we are leading. And we need to really stop being spooked by the idea that uh, lay practice is somehow a, um, an inferior practice to monastic practice. So in conclusion, um, from the time we acquire language as small children, language, which itself is a cultural and therefore a social artefact, encodes our perceptions and the rest of our emotional and cognitive processing. And so we need to get all this sort of lined up. We need to make sure that we are to be effective in our meditation practice and our wider dharma practice, that we are working with the grain uh, of our language, of our culture, um, of our principles of association rather than against them. Um, and um, people, you know, it, it's one of those habits of mind that you often uh, get in uh, conventional Buddhist circles is the, is the understating of the importance of culture. When you think about it, you know, our culture has the same relationship to our biological being as software has to our computer hardware. You know, our, our, our bare biological being, you know, with all the, the, the bones and muscles and the neurotransmitters and the, um, and, uh, the neural nodes and network, etc., would be entirely inert without us having uh, a culture 
a lang- language in which to think our thoughts, to um, to harvest our feelings, our perceptions, and so on. So um, this is why our culture is so critically important to everything we do, and why we uh, need to adopt practices that um, that are supported by that culture, and even and even um, uh, working assumptions and beliefs that are supported by that culture. You know, one of the things that's happened in the West that we've seen a lot of us in our own lifetime is the way that Western culture no longer supports monotheistic belief. So you, know, you have this huge fall away in church going in, you know, when people filling those questionnaires and those surveys. Um, the, the fastest growing religious category in the West are the no religion category. And um, so it, it's clear that the culture which did once very strongly support monotheistic belief no longer does it. Uh, and therefore you get this enormous falling away of religious adherence and religious belief. So cultures are specific, you know, uh, certain cultures will support certain kinds of beliefs and other cultures will not. And this is an issue that we, you know, legitimately should be quite, quite concerned about. Uh, what sort of, what sort of um, beliefs, what sort of principles of association, what sort of practices are appropriate in our culture and given our way of life? So I guess most of us take up Dharma practice with the ambition that it will penetrate deeply into our way of being in the world. It will really inform our way of being in the world uh, to make our lives more uh, more meaningful, uh, more fulfilling, and dare I say, uh, happier. I'm a bit worried about using the H word because it's such an industry these days. But in order for this to happen, the Dharma must speak our language and take on acculturated forms and practices that we can make our own and make our own coherently. 